0: Pain is always real, always real. And if you can figure out the cause of your pain, you'll be in a much better position to treat it.
1: Welcome to Like Mind, Like Body. I'm your host, Laura Sago, and today I am speaking with Dr. Yoni Ashar a neuroscientist, clinical psychologist, and NIH-funded postdoctoral associate at Whale-Cornell Medicine, who just published one of the biggest studies of the year in the field of mind-body medicine. We'll talk about that study in the interview, of course, but we will also touch on some of his other areas of focus, like whether you can tell how much pain someone is experiencing by scanning their brain, or how effective placebo treatments can be for chronic pain. A friendly reminder that this podcast is a part of the Curable Universe, If you struggle with chronic pain and are not a subscriber to the Curable app yet, you are missing out on over a hundred really impactful science-based exercises that could help you improve your daily life. If you enjoy this podcast and the topics that we discuss here, you're going to love what you find in the app, so please give it a try for free at curable.com. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Yoni, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Longtime friend of Curable, first time on the show.
0: Thanks for having me, Laura. It's um yeah, I've been a fan of curable you know, since the beginning, so it's great to be on the show.
1: Yes. So the big topic of the moment that I know you are being asked about in all your interviews right now is obviously the big study you just published that shows very promising results for treating chronic back pain with pain reprocessing therapy and with open-label placebo. I want to get into that study in detail in just a minute. But first, I want to start by backing up a few years and learning more about what brought you to this moment in time. Why did you decide to focus on chronic pain as an area of research in the first place?
0: Uh, That's a great question and there's a lot of serendipity I uh, started out with a strong interest in meditation that uh, stemmed from a personal practice, and then I, I learned about all this research, studying like scientifically the effects of meditation, and I thought that was, you know, amazing, and I and I, you know, was able to to get involved in that research, and then that kind of opened into a broader door of mind body effects and. I was doing my doctoral, um, my doctoral work in the laboratory of Dr. Torweger and Sona Demigen at CU Boulder, and they were studying placebo effects. So I got really interested in placebo effects as this way that our, our emotions and our beliefs can alter our experience of pain and other things. Yeah. And I was setting up a dissertation study on placebo effects when uh, in, in the context of chronic back pain when just at the right moment, uh, Dr. Howard Schubiner and Alan Gordon reached out to Tor and said they had this, uh, treatment that they had developed that they wanted to study, uh, to treat chronic pain. And we were just about to start a, a study on placebo treatments for chronic pain. And we told, uh, Howard and Alan that if they could raise a hundred thousand dollars to, Pay the costs. Uh, we could add their treatment arm to the study, and they pulled off an incredible crowdfunding campaign, and Curable helped with that. and And then it was, uh, you know, the study was born.
1: It's such a fascinating story that what ended up being the main event of this study in the end, this pain reprocessing therapy arm, actually wasn't even included in the original design. It was just supposed to be the effects of open label placebo on chronic back pain.
0: Totally, and even more than that, I mean, I would say I had like no interest in chronic pain. It seemed really like, what a downer, like just to be in pain all the time. Like who wants to study that? That's like, you know, it's a recipe for misery and, Of course, now I think chronic pain is the most interesting thing in the world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And everyone with chronic pain is just such a fascinating individual with a really fascinating story. And it is such a joy to watch people actually get out of pain. I can't imagine something bringing more satisfaction than watching that unfold in the research.
0: Exactly, which I did not know was possible uh, before I got into this work.
1: So tell me a little bit about the participants who were chosen for this study. Did you guys have any specific criteria for what type of back pain they struggled with or what their MRI results showed?
0: Yeah, we recruited 151 participants for this study. And we aim to include basically, I know, as broad as possible, people with chronic back pain who are likely to have um, what we call primary pain, also known as centralized pain or neuroplastic pain, basically, pain that's uh, driven by the brain. And we had a couple of criteria for that. So, first, we excluded people whose leg pain was worse than their back pain, so like kind of shooting down the leg pain. Because in those cases, there's more of a chance there's some kind of radiculopathy. Uh, Whereas if someone has, you know, back pain for six months or more, and it's kind of like the standard dull, achy tension in the back, uh, in most cases that is primary or, you know, neuroplastic pain. Um, So it's really important to add here, we didn't assume a diagnosis for anyone. After people were randomized to PRT, they were... They completed a full assessment with with Howard to, to figure out what was going on with their pain. So it was it was as broad, uh, you know, it was any kind of back pain, basically,
1: six months or more. So you had a wide assortment of different people who were maybe having trouble sitting or having trouble with daily activities. All kinds of different things lumped into one big study.
0: Yep, at least so pain had to be at least four out of ten the past two weeks, and they had to be in pain more days than not of the last six months.
1: Got it. And what about these folks' imaging results? Did you have any folks who showed up with abnormal scans from previous visits to their physicians?
0: Yeah. So anyone who had pre-existing scans of the back, MRI or X-ray, we we asked to see those. That was about half the people had, had, had that available. And of those uh, people, every single one had some kind of finding in imaging, whether it's disc degeneration or scoliosis or stenosis. Um, everyone had at least one finding, and on average, people had four findings. And in, in basically in all cases, uh, Dr. Schubiner, Dr. Schubiner's assessment revealed that those findings were not the cause of pain.
1: Yeah, so walk me through that a little bit more. What exactly does it mean in the context of pain to have an abnormality show up on one of those scans?
0: Yeah, Uh, the short answer is it doesn't mean much by itself that these, you know, quote-unquote abnormalities are actually normal, meaning if you, you know, take people who are pain-free they have these findings at almost the same rates as people who have pain. So there's only a really weak relationship between uh, findings in the knee, the shoulder, the back, all those kind of classic MRIs and x-rays with with symptoms. And so any kind of finding like that on its own is really not an indicator uh, that that's the cause of the pain. Uh, Howard loves talking about these like, gray hair and wrinkles on the inside meaning just normal signs of of being a human getting a little older but not painful just like you know gray hair doesn't hurt uh disc degeneration just doesn't hurt uh or definitely not necessarily or in most cases we can say it doesn't hurt
1: mm-hmm. so As we mentioned before, there were three different arms to this study. There was this open-label placebo arm, there was the pain reprocessing therapy arm, and then as the control group, there was an arm that was called the usual standard of care. What does that mean exactly?
0: So yeah, in, in this arm, we asked people to just continue whatever care they were undergoing anyways. If they had a stretching uh, routine, they should do that. If they were working with a PT, you know, continue with that. Whatever they were doing uh, anyways for their pain to continue their usual care.
1: And did that include different kinds of medications or maybe even yep. psychotherapy as well? Okay.
0: Yeah, probably not psychotherapy. I think as you know, psychotherapy is uh, uncommon uh, in today. We know we're all trying to change that, but mm-hmm. it's pretty rare you know, for pain patients to have tried psychotherapy.
1: The second arm, which was the original intention of the study, was this placebo arm, which you designed to be an open-label placebo. What is an open-label placebo, and how did that end up performing against the usual standard of care group?
0: Yeah. So open-label placebo is this, uh, in my opinion, crazy idea that and Dr. Ted Kapchik at, at Harvard introduced to the world of research about 10 years ago. So Ted reasoned that, you know, we know placebos can work and reduce pain because, you know, people think it's a drug. What would happen if everyone knew it was a placebo? Could it still work? And this is what we call open-label placebo. So, you know, it's a placebo that's labeled placebo. <laughs> and can it still work? And you know, shockingly, the answer from some previous you know work is is yes, placebos can still work even if both the patient and the provider know it to be you know inert, basically saline. And in all these studies, including ours, we make it extremely clear to people: uh, this is this is fake medicine. Like there's nothing um, you know active here. It's another active compound. The active compound is your mind and brain. There's no drug.
1: Mm -hmm. And in this case, it was actually an open-label placebo that was a saline injection, correct?
0: Exactly. So patients in our study went down to visit Dr. Karen Knight at Panorama Orthopedic and Spine in Golden, Colorado. And they had a, a visit with Dr. Knight where they shared with her their their pain story, and she did a physical exam, and they changed into uh, the gown, and they lay on the table, and they pointed to the place on their back where was most, you know, painful, and and doctor and I explained to them that this is a placebo, and even though it's a placebo, we think it could still help you, um, and because we know that placebos are powerful painkillers, and then she did this injection of saline, of salt water, uh, under the skin in the place where it hurt in the back, and I'm mentioning all those details because we, we think that's really important here, the whole context, the relationship with the physician, feeling cared for, um, the ritual, all these rituals we have of, of needles, injections, gowns, tables, uh, these all can trigger our body's natural healing responses in an automatic way. Whether we kind of, you know, believe it or not, that the idea is that these healing responses can get activated by by all these factors. That's the theory.
1: Yeah, not to mention the impact of the positive expectations being set by a credible professional saying, yeah. I think that this is going to help. I think that this is going to work for you.
0: Right, right.
1: Yeah, so as compared to the usual standard of care, how much better did the placebo perform both in the short term, and you guys also conducted some follow-ups after about a year.
0: Yeah, so it worked. So in the short term, there was a significant pain reduction in the placebo group as compared to usual care. And this was a a difference of about half a point out of 10. So placebo participants went down by an additional half point. You know, people started around four or five, so I would say it's a Kind of moderate effect, not definitely not a big effect, uh, but not tiny either. And when we followed people over time, we found that the effect mostly diminished. You know, several months out, uh, people were there was a there was a small effect, but it wasn't significant.
1: Okay, so this brings us to the third arm of the study, which of course is the main event: this pain mm-hmm. reprocessing therapy arm. What did participants do in this arm exactly?
0: So this was nine sessions delivered over a month. Uh, the first session was an assessment with Dr. Howard Schubiner, aiming to uh, determine for each particular patient uh, the causes of pain. And in particular, you know, is this what we, you know, neuroplastic pain, or is there something kind of from a biomedical, mechanical, disease perspective, something in the body? Uh, disease or injury that's driving the pain. And that was followed by eight sessions with one of the study therapists. In this study, it was uh, Alan Gordon and Christy Weepy were the therapists. And they had eight sessions of uh, pain reprocessing therapy.
1: Mm-hmm. And was anyone excluded after that initial assessment with Dr. Schubner? Did anyone conclude, okay, my pain is different and... We're not going to try the pain reprocessing therapy on me.
0: No. So no one was excluded. Really important point. Of the 44 assessments that the doctor Schubiner completed, we found that 42 of 44 had neuroplastic pain, and the remaining two were unclear. And in those remaining cases, a main goal of continued treatment was to, you know, in a collaborative way with the patient, try to figure out what was the cause of pain, and uh, the, the clinical team by the end of the study thought it was likely that those two also had centralized pain.
1: Okay, and those two ended up going through the pain reprocessing therapy as well?
0: Yep, yep.
1: Okay, so how did that end up performing as opposed to the usual standard of care and the open label placebo?
0: Really, really well. We saw large reductions in pain Uh, large and long-lasting reductions so um, honestly so kind of big that we we created a a category um, that hasn't really been used much in the research before uh, to describe to kind of characterize the the treatment response so so we we defined a category of people as pain-free or nearly pain-free if they reported zero or one out of ten pain After treatment. And we found that 66% of people randomized to PRT were pain free or nearly pain free after treatment, as compared to 20% in the placebo group and 10% in the usual care group.
1: Wow. And how did that hold up a year later?
0: It largely held up. Um, So a year later, you know, people were, were, many of them were still out of pain. So to put it on like a zero to 10 scale, um, at post-treatment, people's pain was, a you know, started on average four out of 10, and then ended about one out of 10. And then a year later was maybe like one and change, 1.3 or 1.4, I would need to double check the exact number. But it was, it was large and long lasting.
1: Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Uh, for anyone who's listening who isn't familiar, with The Curable World or Pain Reprocessing Therapy or Alan Gordon's Tell Me About Your Pain podcast. What is Pain Reprocessing Therapy? Like what actually happened in those magical sessions to achieve these almost never seen before results?
0: So the central aim of PRT is to help patients you know, reconceptualize their pain as a false alarm of danger, meaning while the pain is totally real, there really is no injury, there's no danger or damage, and uh, there is nothing to be afraid of, and help patients really drop the fear around the pain uh, by understanding that it is a product of neuroplasticity totally harmless changes in brain pathways. And what we found, Laura, actually was, so we we measured people's fear of pain and their pain attributions, and what we found was that people who had the largest drops in, say, injury beliefs, so the belief that the pain indicates an injury, people with the largest drops in that had the largest drops in pain. And likewise, we also measured people, we asked them what they, Believe to be the causes of their pain, in their own words. So we had people um, you know, tell us things before treatment. Oh, my pain was caused by an accident 20 years ago. My pain is caused by uh, disc degeneration, stenosis, um, years of, of heavy labor. Now, these were kind of the standard attributions, what people believe to be the cause of their pain, that pre-treatment and that post-treatment uh, PRT participants were telling us uh, the pain is due to stress, the pain is due to fear, due, it's due to neural pathways, and and again, the people who had the largest changes in their pain attributions also had the largest drops in pain.
1: One of the parts of this study that I find most fascinating is that you had a way of measuring what was happening to these patients from a physiological standpoint, because you conducted before and after brain scans for these participants. And what did those brain scans tell you?
0: Yeah, we saw two main brain changes. So the first one was we invented this pain device, basically, as you know part of this study that you know to evoke people's back pain during brain scanning apparently it turns out no one has needed to um evoke back pain during scanning before so uh, we we put ourselves to the task and we um what we found was that in the prt group people's brains were less activated in these three prefrontal regions um, at post-treatment compared to control. So basically, their brain responses to this evoked back pain you know, decreased. This points to two things. One, that you know, we kind of you know, objectively verified what people were telling us, that they were in less pain. We saw their brains being less active as well in, in this pain task. And these particular regions that showed a decrease were also really interesting. It was the anterior insula, anterior mid-cingulate, and anterior prefrontal cortex, which are all brain regions that are involved in you know, how we make sense of the pain, or more specifically even how threatening we, we find sensations and other stimuli to be. So these are not brain regions that most directly track input from the body up to the brain, but they're sort of higher up in the hierarchy involved in in making sense of and assigning threat value to these sensations. So one interpretation of of the reductions we observed is that there was less of a threat response uh, in these people's brains.
1: This study has been extremely well received. Obviously, there's a lot of buzz about it right now. And I know a lot of folks are excited to see if these findings will be replicated in future studies as well. But it's important to note that this is not the only study that has come out recently showing huge promise for this area of work, for this almost psychosocial approach to chronic pain treatment. There is, in fact, another study that was released the same week, which our friend and one of your partners in this study, Howard Schubner, was also involved in. Can you tell me a little bit about that study?
0: Yeah, this was amazing uh, serendipity. I was not aware of the study until it was published the same week as mine. This came from Beth Deaconess Med School in, in Boston. They tested a treatment which they called, We get this, Uh, super similar to PRT. It's, I think, PSRT or PRST. I don't remember. PSRT or PR, you know. Wow. And and, um, based on some very similar premises, um, in their approach, there is a bit more of a focus on how emotions that we're, uh, you know, avoiding and kind of inner conflict can contribute to pain. But uh, in general, a highly similar treatment and like us they found that a majority of participants in treated with this approach were pain free at post treatment
1: that's incredible
0: it's incredible and one thing i need to add here laura is that i think that this work our study and and their study is really challenges a current paradigms for for the psychological treatment of pain so Current treatments like CBT and ACT um, are great, and they mostly aim to help people suffer less around the pain and to improve their quality of life. And that's what studies show is that you know pain reductions are you know pretty modest or moderate. There's no big changes, but people report they do suffer less or they're able to be more active. And what our work is suggesting is well what if we could just get rid of the pain itself like what if a psychological treatment could eliminate the pain then we don't need uh, just to manage it better or to suffer less around it we could actually get rid of it and that to me is wild and not something frankly I ever would have believed before I saw it happen in my own data
1: yeah so just for the folks out there listening who are Living in pain and thinking to themselves, well, I've tried everything, including psychological treatment before. How and why is this different? Can you explain a little bit about the difference between these kind of new and emerging fields of treatment versus the traditional psychotherapy approach?
0: Yes. So the traditional approaches basically take the pain as a given. And try to help people be less worried about it. Or to be more, you know, be more balanced and they're thinking about it. Well, sure, maybe I won't ever be able to run a marathon, but I can still walk to the grocery store instead of, you know, kind of catastrophizing. These treatments generally understand pain to indicate some kind of problem in the body, and you know, you gotta kind of learn to live with it. Learn to live with it gracefully. And this is a beautiful thing because there are, of course, many people uh, who have, you know, injuries or other kind of medical conditions where they will be in pain and living with it gracefully is, you know, is the the task that we can take upon ourselves. What these new treatments do is they really start from a different premise. They start from a, a premise that Pain is a sensation that the brain constructs and that the brain can construct it in the absence of any kind of injury or any kind of medical condition. This is a sensation that you can basically, you know, it can be just generated by the brain and, and due to, you know, neural pathways. And if that is true, then you can also deconstruct it by changing how you think and changing how you act and disrupt those brain pathways and eliminate the pain.
1: Yeah, it's so fascinating how far our understanding of the brain and specifically the brain's role in pain has come even in the last few years leading up to this study you have looked into this before though in other research that you've done this is not your first rodeo with brain scans or pain can you tell me about some of the work that you've done on the brain biomarkers of pain
0: sure yeah this is work uh, led by my uh, my doctoral mentor dr tor wager so tor um has done a lot of amazing amazing work on Pain and the brain and emotion and how uh, how what we think and feel and believe can can influence you know pain and one thing that Tor has been working on has been the development of a brain biomarker for pain. The question there is, can you you know peer inside someone's brain and read out how much pain they're experiencing? So pain has traditionally been really difficult to measure. You know give me a number, 0 to 10, or, you know, pick one of these faces with a squiggly line on it, you know, as you know, a smiley or how, how, how wiggly is your mouth line. And Tor has tried to directly measure the pain in the organ that's generating it, meaning the brain, and developed uh, something called the neurological pain signature, which can really quite accurately, you know, tell if a person's in relatively more or relatively less pain based on their brain activity. One thing we've learned from that work and from many other studies is that pain is incredibly complex in the brain. I mean, there's no one pain center. There's no even one area of the brain that's the pain area. Like we have visual cortex that does vision and auditory auditory cortex that does hearing. There's no pain cortex. Pain is sort of everywhere and nowhere. Uh, So really widely distributed really complex and um, it's certainly an open scientific question what all these different regions are doing are they redundant with each other like a backup system uh, to make sure that we feel pain no matter if you know one part of the system goes down we have another part because pain so fundamental to our survival we need redundancy or uh, are they actually playing unique roles uh, one thing that seems very likely is that some of these regions are encoding Our expectations and our predictions of pain Uh, you know so if we think that bending over we expect to have pain when we bend over then those expectations are very likely encoded in some of these brain regions and that those expectations can play a big influence on the experience of pain as well
1: There's so many open questions and fascinating things to look into. What do you think is next? What do you think the future holds for chronic pain research?
0: Gosh, there's a, there's a lot. There's so much um, to uh, to be fascinated by here. So I'm really interested in understanding how the brain, you know, creates pain in the absence of any injury. You know where where in the nervous system are these changes happening um, is there a really altered signal coming up from the back for example for back pain or is the back just sending totally normal signals and the, just the sensitivity like the in the brain is way is way amplified i'm really interested in how emotional states can influence pain and how that that works at the brain level you know many Many of our patients you know, know firsthand that when they have a state of internal conflict or stress um, their pain flares up and we don't really understand why that is. And that's really interesting. And, and I'm also really excited about other brain-based treatments for pain. Uh, these include brain stimulation Based treatments for pain that I'm starting to work on, as well as as psychedelic-based treatments for pain, which I'm also uh, starting to work on.
1: Very interesting. As far as the treatments that we now know more about, thanks to your research like PRT and the treatment that this other study was about, um, what do you think the future is going to be like for chronic pain treatment now that we have more evidence for approaches like that? Do you think that things will begin to change?
0: I sure hope so. I know we need more studies to uh, to help create a paradigm shift, which is what I think we're all hoping for, ultimately, you know, a, a paradigm shift that puts the mind and brain at the center of how we think about and treat chronic pain. And... Yeah, there's there's, you know, you know, I don't know if the change is going to happen slowly or if it's going to happen quickly. I'll be really curious to watch how how this unfolds, how this is received by mainstream physicians, by insurance companies, and um, by patients, you know.
1: Yeah, last question for you, as this unfolds, what practical advice do you have for someone who is currently living in pain as their reality every day, and taking all of this and digesting this information for maybe the first time?
0: Um, well, I would say a, couple, a few things. First of all, I would just wanna to say to, to anyone and everyone that the pain is always real. Uh, whether it's neuroplastic pain or you know, medical sort of, you know, pain, it's always real. And, and that if you can figure out the cause of your pain, you'll be in a much better position to, to treat it. And that these um, sort of psychological approaches are, uh, are low risk, there's very few adverse, you know, events, they're, they're, they're pretty safe. And um, I would say try something new and um, see, how it, see, see how it works for you. Many, many people have been helped uh, by this approach. And um, I would definitely encourage people to try curable. Curable is a fantastic app. I've sent people to curable that have come back to me with miraculous stories of healing and recovery you know, after decades of pain. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of curable.
1: Wonderful. Well, we're a big fan of your work as well, Yanni, and I'm I'm so glad that we got to chat today and talk more about it, and I can't wait to see what you've got up your sleeve next.
0: Great. Thanks, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Of course. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Like Mind, Like Body. If you are someone who struggles with pain, do not forget to check out the Curable app. It is actually the only app that offers pain reprocessing therapy exercises that you can do at home. You can get started on that for free at curable.com. Big thanks to our show editor and theme music composer, Lori Poliski. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you back here next time.